Today's passage comes from Luke 8, 1 through 15. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, now we thank you for uh, this passage and the reading of your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would illumine our hearts, that we would uh, be transformed by not only your word, but with understanding, Lord, that the seed would sink into our hearts. Lord, especially in this uh, tumultuous time, this election season, Lord, where so many are divided, we pray, O oh God, that you would unite us in faith to one another and that we would preach and be able to exude and reflect the message of reconciliation between men and God through your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, um, it's, it was a tough week. And I'll have, I have to admit, it was hard to focus. Uh, there was just a lot going on. And um, as I alluded to when, we, when I did the welcome a few minutes ago, um, there's just a crossfire. And, uh, of, and, and I'm not even sure I've made sense of it all. I thought, well, should I redirect my, my sermon preparation and preach about you know, our nation and this election and all of those things? And um, I needed someone to preach to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm still trying to put together what's going on 
in our nation. But the word of the Lord stands forever, and we are edified and built up through the preaching of the word in ways that we don't always appreciate. In fact, I want to say that as we've been moving through the book of Luke, a lot of different things have happened in your lives, in our nation, in our culture, in the world, and you may not realize it, but being exposed to the regular preaching of the Word, especially going through the book of the, a book of the Bible like we have been, is changing you. You may not realize it's happening to you, but you're being changed by the hearing and the reception of the Word of God week in and week out. These stories of Jesus, this narrative in Luke's Gospel about his miracles and encounters with believers and unbelievers and the resistance that he received is transforming you. The word of God is powerful and it saves and it transforms. Now the Bible is a book anyone can read and grab. Um, even in countries where it's outlawed, uh, people can get online and they often do and they read um, uh, secretly. But here in the West, um, the Word of God has been studied and dissected and deconstructed and examined and analyzed and mined, if you will, for all it's worth. And uh, countless commentaries and books have been written and sermons, countless sermons preached over the last 2,000 years of church history And there are dozens of seminaries, though, in which the Word of God is treated scientifically. Most of the professors in those seminaries are quite skeptical of its claims, and many are not even Christians. Some are outright atheists. You can think of the New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman. He's a prime example of one who once professed faith in Christ, but his profession of faith was strangled, ultimately, by his scholarship, and he's now an avowed agnostic. And I'm not saying anything bad about him. If he was standing next to me, he would say, yes, that's true. Well, chapter 8 in Luke, where we're at right now, marks a transition in our text. Luke is no longer alone. I'm excuse me, Jesus is no longer alone. But with him are the 12 apostles, and a core group of followers. Up until this point in the narrative, Jesus has, um, Jesus has been talking to um, crowds and multitudes and people, uh, but now, along with Jesus, is his inner circle. And from this point forward in the text, there is a bunch, quite, quite a bit of Uh, um, dialogue between Jesus and his followers, where um, the view, uh, which has been spanned out at this point, it starts to focus in. And we see a lot of interaction between Jesus and his apostles. Jesus says something, and his apostles will respond, asking him questions. And so we start to see this intimate relationship, and the dynamics of Jesus' relationship with his church. And that's who the apostles and these followers are. And we read here in these first three verses that Jesus is going around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The apostles are with him. There's a great crowd. But Luke 
is careful to mention to us that there are women in this group. Now, in the ancient world, uh, and for much of antiquity, um, that would not be something that a writer, someone like Luke, who is um, recording the history of events, that's not something typically people would mention. Women did not have the status in that day that they do now. And not only does Luke mention that there are women, but he mentions them by name. There is Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, and one Susanna. And this bunch of, this group of people, this bunch that's with Jesus, they're not miracle workers like him. Um, They're not scholar theologians. Uh, They're average people like you and me, among whom the power of God has transferred from the grips of Satan and darkness. These are people going around with Jesus. They're um, corroborating Jesus' ministry, giving credibility to his ministry. You know, you've seen commercials where um, there's some new, you know, ab blaster or something, and um, they talk about the product, and then what they do is they show someone's before and after picture, right? And they've got, like, you know, the muffin top and all of those things, and, you know, the next picture, and they're completely ripped, and, you know, and, and you know, the product is usually some silly little twisty machine, but, but the idea is that if you see the, the product's, uh, you know, um, capability, in other people like you, you start to think, well, maybe there's something to this. And these people following Jesus are average people. And as you see them, especially if you were in that day, and if you knew any of those people, you would say, oh, Mary, that's the crazy lady. That was the crazy lady. Look at her. She's got poise. She's graceful. Something's happened to Mary. Or the others that were with Jesus, who Luke tells us were healed of many diseases and demons were cast out of them. And it would be hard for you to deny that Jesus was doing something powerful. He was not just some magician, a trickster, a charlatan. That even if you didn't know what Jesus was, you knew that what he was doing was different than anything anyone had ever done before. And so the Spirit is at work in this group of people, sanctifying them. I just mentioned these women a minute ago, Mary Magdalene, whom seven demons had gone out. Well, Joanna, the other woman they mentioned, is the wife of one Chusa, Herod's, um, her husband, uh, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. So the person who runs Herod's household, his wife is a disciple of Jesus, and another woman named Susanna, and Luke tells us they f- they're financing the movement. They are giving of their resources to help finance the movement. Yes, even in the first century, Jesus needed money to keep the ball rolling. And they're helping to finance the movement. And it's a diverse group. And they've left everything to follow Jesus. And... Um, So there's this dialogue we're about to see between Jesus and his disciples, and this heightens the drama. This helps to heighten the drama for us to see what's really going on. And in verses 4 through 8, Jesus gives a parable that really helps us understand the mixed response 
to his message that's already begun, but will continue through the next few chapters, right? There's this mixed response. Not everyone receives Jesus' words with joy and gladness. Some people outright resist it. And so Jesus illustrates what's going on in a parable. And he gives this parable, the imagery of which would have been really familiar to people in the first century living in an agrarian culture, right? It is a culture whose their product and um, their work surrounds uh, farms and fields and farming. Uh, It's an agrarian culture. Um, And he gives this parable of the sower, right? The sower physically who goes around scattering seed. Now today they have machines, right? If you seed your own lawn, Right? Have you ever done it? You put the seed and you just you go like this and it, it shoots the seed out you know, symmetrically, perfectly. But in those days, a sower would have a bag over his shoulder and he would, you know, he would dig his hand into the bag and he would just throw the seed. He'd walk across the field and he would just throw the seed. And he threw the seed indiscriminately. So that he was, the seed would go all over the place because, of course, he wanted uh, a good return in the harvest. And in verse 5, Jesus says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. But... Some fell into good soil, and it grew, and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples hear this parable, and they're confused by its meaning. Right? It seems like a straightforward explanation of what happens when a sower goes out to plant in his field, but they want to know the deeper meaning behind it. Now, almost everyone in this room, probably, without even reading the next few verses, knows what it means, because we have 2,000 years of theological reflection. Many of us grew up as Christians. You've heard the story time and time again. I hope to shed some new light uh, on the story this morning. This is perhaps one of the best uh, known parables of Jesus. But they're confused, and they ask for, ask for an explanation. And before Jesus gives the explanation, he says something that's really important for the disciples and for us now. In verse 10, he says this. So he's about to unpack the parable, but before he unpacks the parable, he prefaces it with this statement. And this is important. He says in verse 10, to you it has been given to know the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of God. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is divine revelation, something that not everyone will understand or is privy to. What he's telling them is, you are privileged. You are called. God has opened your hearts 
and opened your minds to reveal to you things that for other people, it's confusing. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables so that seeing they don't see and hearing they may not understand. And this is the idea that the true nature of the kingdom, which has remained hidden for ages, is now being revealed. This is what Jesus is saying. The true nature of the kingdom, which has been hidden, is now being revealed. Colossians 1.25, the word of God, Paul writes to the Colossians, which is now being made fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints or his holy ones. Which is to say that something radically is happening in the world in Jesus' ministry in the first century. There is a change in which the way God deals with people and deals with the world and even deals with his people. Something was hidden and now it's being revealed and what Jesus is about to reveal is a part of that. And the first, illust- the first image he has, he get- Jesus gives us to unpack the parable is the seed on the path. Now, I, if I can back up just for a moment, um, God's holy ones, what marks them out and, and sets them apart from those who don't belong to him is that they see and they actually perceive. They hear and they actually understand Whereas those who are not God's holy ones see but don't really perceive, they hear but they don't really understand, and one could argue that by implication, uh, this is the difference between you know, the elect and the non-elect, but that's not Jesus' point here, and that's not the point Luke is trying to make, so we'll leave that for another time. But it's important for us at least to file that away. And so the first image in verse 12 is the seed on the path. And the parable here is somewhat of an allegory. It's not a metaphor or a simile. A simile is something that is like something else. The kingdom of God is like this. That's a simile. Uh, This is more of an allegory. Jesus says, the ones along the path, in verse 12, are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. In the ancient world, uh, when you had a field, you would often have a little path that went through the middle of it, so you could get to all of it. If you had a big field, if you walked on the middle path, you could access the crops on the left and on the right, and often people had to make their way through so that they weren't trampling on the crops There was a beaten path. Now, paths aren't like they are today, where they might have asphalt or concrete, but they were hard and beaten, and they were dry, and there was no moisture in them. And just like a concrete path, the seed would bounce right off of it. And not only that, but the sun would beat down on the seed that landed on the path, and the birds would... Uh, eat the seed because it was exposed. The seed took no root at all. And the idea here is that 
The Word of God has the potential to save if it germinates in a person's heart. But this is something the devil is very much against. Someone may hear the Word, but if it only stays in their head and doesn't sink down into their heart, well, they don't benefit from it. And just like I mentioned a minute ago, there are people all over our nation who know the Word, who have heard the Word, but it has not penetrated their heart. It doesn't germinate in them, and they're not benefited from it. I mean, you know, I mean, can't tell you how many people I, I, I know who are Christians who tell me, you know, I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing the Bible, but I, it just never sank in, right? You know, some of us have that testimony. Well, this is the seed that lands on the path. And what's important for us to recognize is the preaching of the Word of God is a battle between God and Satan for the hearts of men and women. Our culture, we said a minute ago, is a perfect example of it. But whenever the Word of God is preached, there is spiritual warfare because Satan desires to snatch away the Word of God like a bird snatching a seed on a path where, there, that, where a seed has not taken root. There is spiritual warfare every single time you hear the Word of God, whether it's here on Sunday morning or you're listening on the radio, your favorite podcast, or you're reading it, spiritual warfare is taking place because Satan is attacking, trying to snatch away the Word of God and prevent it from germinating in you. Some of us, you know, don't know what to make of spiritual warfare. What do we think about spiritual warfare? Every time you hear the Word of God, there is spiritual warfare. Because not only Satan, but the residue of hardness in your heart wants to resist the word of God's claims and ownership over you. And you know this to be true because sometime during this past week, you failed to obey the word of God. I failed to obey the word of God. There is spiritual warfare going on every time the word goes out, just like a seed laying bare on a dry, hard path, exposed to the sun and the birds of the air. Now, in all fairness, this verse isn't talking about Christians, but those who don't believe and aren't saved. So Jesus, in the grand picture, is giving us a picture, an image of those who do and don't receive the word, but I thought for a moment that that application is apt for us today. Now, the second image is seed that falls on the rock. And um, in the first century uh, world that Jesus was preaching in, um, there would have been a thin layer of ground uh, with limestone right underneath the soil, the topsoil. Have you ever put a shovel into the dirt and you hit something hard? Well, if that's ever happened to you, this is what... Jesus is talking about. There are certain places in the Middle East, particularly Israel and Palestine, where right underneath the dirt, there is limestone. So the soil does not have much ability to absorb moisture, um, and uh, whatever has been planted does not have much of an ability for the roots to go very deep. Verse 13, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, 
And in a time of testing, they fall away. And here, in this image, the Word of God experiences some initial and quick growth. But because the, shallow, the ground is shallow uh, and can't really receive moisture, it doesn't take root and it withers. And the seed without root is like um, the emotional response to Christ we sometimes see from people, but it's shallow. Have you ever seen that? You know, someone initially, maybe this was once your response, where they hear about the gospel, they hear about the word of God, they hear about Jesus, and there is an initial excitement, an initial excitement, but they don't endure. And we scratch our heads and we think, boy, they were off to such a good start. What happened? Well, this is what Jesus is talking about, and he's saying, look, you're going to see some people who initially respond really well to the preaching of the word of God. They're excited about it. There's an emotional response. They're happy. You know, they seem like, oh, yeah, you know, dead ringer, nailed it. You know, these people are, they love it. They love Jesus. They're on board. And then, you know, a few weeks later, a few months later, maybe a couple years later, they're gone. You never see them again, and they never step foot in a church again. Ran into a guy this weekend, and um, his, he said he grew up as a Southern Baptist, and his wife still goes to the Southern Baptist church. And I asked him, you know, how long has it been? And he said it's, it's been like over a decade that he's been in church. And as, you know, as I met him, I was, you know, in the process of wrapping up this sermon and went back home and thought, I wonder if he's one of those kind of people who heard the word initially with gladness, was excited about it, but when tr a trial sprang up, um, it became unprofitable. They're not deeply rooted and grounded, and because of that, the seed doesn't have a chance to do all it can. And when temptation comes, it gives into it. Now, it says trials, but the context and the original word really connotes the idea of temptations, those kinds of trials. And so when temptation to sin arises, they give into it. And, of course, it, you know, chokes out or crowds out uh, the word of God. And the third image is seed among thorns. Verse 14 says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but they go on their way, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So this, this kind of seed has a little bit more progress. It takes root. It grows and even looks like it's about to bear fruit, but the fruit does not mature because of the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of life. And these are those whose concern for spiritual things is crowded out by material things. And this is something every one of us who even believe still struggle with, right? For this people, the word of God is choked by worry, by riches, pleasures. Um, you know, if trials can choke the word, so can the good life, right? It's not just struggles that threaten 
the word in us, but the good life. Um, I remember years ago, I worked in a grocery store, and we had the magazine rack, and in my early 20s, I would go over there and look at the Rob Report. Who knows what the Rob Report is? The Rob Report, where every one of us who's ever looked at that magazine, we look at things we know we'll never, ever have, you know, a $50 million, 150-foot yacht or something crazy like that. And at some point, you have to wonder, who are these people, (laughs) right? Like, who are these people who are able to, you know, buy, not only buy this magazine, but get the stuff in it, right? Well, these are people who often, not all of them, maybe some of them are Christians, I'm not making a judgment about them, I'm just using it as an illustration to say, what this type of soil lands on are uh, the people who um, often are wrapped up in the cares of this life, living the good life riches and pleasures and worries about their riches and pleasures, right? You say, well, wait a minute. Are they worrying or are they living the good life? Well, often people who are living the good life, all of their worries are wrapped up in maintaining the good life. You know, they're not worry-free. They don't go to bed and have excellent night's sleep every night. They're thinking about how they can continue the good life. And that also chokes the Word of God. There's someone who's been in my life for many years. I've shared the gospel with this person many, many times. But they're consumed by money. They worry about it. Who wants to take it? How much you know, they're spending? All of their life is about their money, planning their next vacation, And at at times, this person has come to church, they've heard the Word of God preached, but because of their their occupation with their own welfare and possessions and comfort, the Word of God is crowded out. The Word of God is choked out, and they never mature. You know, I've shared the Word, the Gospel with this person more times than I can count. I've known this person for decades. 1 Timothy 6 and 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And Jesus is saying that the seed that is choked off and can't bear fruit is because of misplaced priorities in this life. And it's not that those things are insignificant, but they're not to have first place and thus destroy a person's spiritual reception of the Word of God, right? All of those things have their place, Pleasures, vacations, homes, possessions, nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But when they have first place in a person's life, the word of the gospel is choked out and strangled and crowded out. What it means to know Christ is to rest in him. 
when all of your ability to manage your own welfare and possessions and well-being and when all of those things are, you know, shaken, and at times they are, we rest in Christ. We rest in Him. We have confidence in Him. And then finally, the fourth image is seed in good soil. Verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. So there are three keys, according to this verse, of a successful response to the word. The first is the right kind of heart. Jesus says an honest and good heart. The second key is of responding well to the word is holding fast the word, which is another way to speak of faith. When you hold fast the word, you believe it. When trials come up in your life and you hold fast the word of God, it's because you have faith that it's true, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, right? I mean, how many times have things happened in your life and you were believing God and the little, there's a little voice in the back of your head saying, you're nuts. God's not going to show up. God's not going to answer. God's not going to help you. But you hold fast to the word and God's promises in faith. And the third response involves patience. If you are to withstand the pressure of living faithfully, you need patience. And patience is the opposite of falling away. People who don't fall away are patient people. People who hold fast to the Word of God are patient people. People who believe in spite of all of the opposition, right, of life and trials and circumstances are people who are holding fast patiently, right? We want God to hear us and answer quickly. We want God to judge the wicked now. We want God to heal us of our brokenness at this very moment. But we endure patiently. We have to if we're going to make it, if the seed is going to germinate and bear fruit in us. James 1 and 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5.3 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us ashamed because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now the point of all of this is not to make hard, fast rules about percentages. Well, you know, looking at this verse, it means only 25% of the people you preach are actually going to receive it. That's not the point. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't walk away from this verse thinking that. The greater point is that the Word of God is not received by everybody. Right? And there's a tension we have with that. Because we've been commissioned to share and preach and disciple the nations. 
but a lot of people we share it with, well, they don't respond well, at least in front of us. And this is something we should also think about when we think about sowing faithfully. You know, the sower's responsibility is not to ensure its proper reception, but to sow faithfully. And I want to say this, and I've said this before, we don't grow the church, God does. In Acts chapter 2, it says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved, but what we're called to do faithfully is to do what? To sow. We're called to be faithful sowers of the seed. God calls us to be faithful sowers. And so the question for us this morning is, are we being the good soil? And are we also sowing faithfully? Are we receiving the word with a good and faithful heart? Holding to the word steadfastly? Patiently? Or are we frustrated with God because God hasn't given us everything we've wanted or been to us everything we think he needs to be right now at this point in our lives? Or do we endure patiently? Are we the good soil? Are you also sowing faithfully? You know, we don't have the prescience to predict who will or won't receive the word. And that's not the point. It's not for us to try to figure out who will receive the seed. It's not for us to try to figure out in advance the type of soil people are before we sow seed. Remember, the sower sows indiscriminately, puts his hand in the bag, and he sows indiscriminately. I remember buying, when I bought my first house in 1995, it was, the, the design of the front and backyard was kind of like a rocky desert motif. There were gravel and cobblestones and rose bushes, but it wasn't lush, and I wanted grass. And so I you know, dug up all of this stone and rock and gravel, and then I just had bare dirt, but it was dry desert dirt. You know, um, Southern California is really a desert. Um, and they've, you know, they've brought in water from the Colorado River, and that's why there's lush places, but it's really dry. <clears throat> and my dad came over, and we rented a rototiller. I don't know if you know what that is. Rototill machine, and, it, and it's got spikes, and you, know, you put it in the ground, and it tills the ground. And when you till the ground, there's all these rocks. And we got a big, long blade, and you know, we evened it out, and we, we soaked it for a good while. And uh, I didn't know how to do any of this. My dad, he had the green thumb, and we went together, and we bought uh, 40 bags of manure and 40 pounds of seed. And it was just a little small house with a tiny little front yard and a small backyard. And we perfectly laid out the first 20 bags of manure, and we soaked it with water. And then I went with that little machine, and I, <clears throat> the little seed-spreading machine, 20 pounds of seed on top of the manure, and it was bouncing off the walls. It was all over the place. And then we laid down another 20 bags of manure and flattened it out and did, it, did another 20, 20 uh, pounds of seed. So, I mean, this was a lot. And we, I watered the heck out of it. But it was going into the winter. And it was maybe mid-November. And it's starting to get cold. 
And yes, in some places in L.A. it does get cold. And some of the, some of the grass started to spring up. But there were just, it was patchy, and I thought, I ruined it. All this hard work. I didn't do my homework. I didn't know enough. And we went into the winter, and it was just a cold, wet lawn of manure with a couple patches of green grass. But the spring came. And as we went into March, the grass started to come up. And it came up so lush. It came up so thick. I mean, I had the greenest, thickest grass in the neighborhood by the time I got to the end of April. And we don't always see the fruit maturing in front of our eyes when we sow the Word of God. We don't always see it prop up right in front of us. And the Bible tells us some are planters and some water. But God, sometimes immediately and sometimes next spring, or two to three springs down the road, God gives the increase. And so we fulfill our missional calling ultimately by faith knowing the power of the word to transform the hearts of those God has chosen to hear and receive it. Are you sowing? Are you a sower? Are you faithfully sowing? Are you good soil yourself? Let's be good soil Let's be the kind of people that the word germinates in and bears fruit that we also might be faithful sowers. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for the fact that by your grace, the word of God has germinated in our hearts. And for those of us here who have not responded in faith to the preaching of the word and the gospel of Christ, We pray that there would be a response in us. For those of us who have been preoccupied with the cares and worries of this life or temptations to sin and the word of God has not had first place in our hearts, we pray that you would transform and convict and save. That we would be that final category of fruit-bearing soil good, rich soil, nutrient-rich, nutrient-filled soil. Lord, producing fruit for the coming harvest when you return. We thank you now in Christ's name.